welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you, everyone, um, for being here. Rena in New Jersey, grateful, recovered sexaholic. And um, yesterday was my third birthday. <laughs> I am so happy about that. I cannot tell you. Um, I'm not one of those people who had much hope when I first came to the 12-step rooms. I was scared out of my mind. Um I had made such a mess of my life, in my health, in my marriage, in my business. Just like everything I touched turned to dust because of my sexaholism and not wanting to grow up, not wanting to face reality, not wanting to deal with difficult emotions. It was just such a horrible group of things. So even though today I'm so happy and excited to be here with you, it is fueled by the depth of the of the bottom of of my withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal was bad enough that i said to myself i would rather die than go through this again it was horrible i was crying all the time every meeting i went to in person or dialed into on the phone um i felt like people recognized me as a crying girl <laughs> and um so to no longer be that person who's crying at every single meeting, my goodness, that's such a relief. And it's a reminder to me when temptation comes that, yeah, you are a sexaholic just because things are going well today and um, things are improving in my life. It doesn't mean that the disease itself goes away. So I need to keep myself um, spiritually fit in order to continue being of service to God, in order to continue um having a life that I don't need to run away from anymore. So by way of background, um, I came to the rooms on 7-13-2019. Uh, I started, you know, my first 30 days of program, I went to seven different fellowships because like I said, my, my life was falling apart in every direction. Um, I had collected more than 70 phone numbers by the time my first month was over. The person who actually kind of diagnosed me is somebody that I had hired to help me with sales in my business. And then she started asking me some personal questions that I thought was none of her business. But thank God she did because I had been carrying my secrets for so long. I had, um, I had accepted that I would be a liar and that I would have to live two lives or three lives, however many lives I was living, that I was going to have to exist like that for the rest of my life, because there are things that I wanted to do, but there are things which are acceptable for a woman who wants to be respectable. And then there's the things that I wanted to do, which were not so respectable at all. So I felt like I had to hide myself and I had to maintain this image, um, you know, of an upstanding citizen so that people would respect me. And at the same time, that just kept feeding my ego and just kept the monster of rewarding myself for being a good person by doing everything that I was doing. So um, before I came to the program, my husband had already discovered infidelity a long time ago, forgave me, we worked it out. And then I started playing around again. But this time I told myself it was a guiltless thrill. And I had all kinds of cute ways of explaining away my behavior and making it fun um, and disconnecting myself from the truth of what I was doing, distancing myself from the destruction that I was creating for him and for me. Um, I always had a fascination with men and, and because we grew up very strict you can't do this. You can't play with boys. You can only have the friends we tell you to have and your friends have to meet this criteria. I never really felt comfortable around other people. I felt like 
other people had to meet a certain standard to be in my world. Um, and that I needed to meet a certain standard in order to be acceptable. So it was always this, you know, does this, does this check the box? <laughs> does this person check the box? Do I check the boxes also? Um, I was afraid to be seen. I wanted to be anonymous all my life. If I knew going into recovery that one day I'd have to show my face anywhere, I probably wouldn't do it. I thought I could just go to a couple of meetings, hear what I need to hear, fix up my life, done, run away again into complete anonymity. Um, however, having unwrapped the gift of recovery, and that's my message today, unwrap the gift of recovery. Um, I can say that there's a lot of things that I didn't know were going to happen in my recovery that did happen and which now has set the foundation for my life to be better. Um, I, I don't want to go too much into my, into triggering things in terms of what I did. Those are things that I do share with my home group and in program, I learned to be honest in program, somebody or many somebody's know um, what I've done. So I no longer have any secrets. So anything and everything about my active addiction, there are multiple somebodies who know, cause I have multiple sponsors in different programs. And at one point or another, I've shared everything. Um, being a very private person, I thought I could never be capable of that, but then it made me feel like I had to stop hiding. I was afraid to go into a room and be honest about myself because I said, you know what, maybe I can just talk about the light things that I've done. Um, because as soon as people find out more about me, about what I've done and the degree to which I went to um, create this fantasy world, then people are just going to get up and like literally walk out of the room. I was bracing myself um, that if I share too much, that people would start to run away from me. And that even in the rooms, I came into the rooms saying, I'm not one of those people and looking down on people in the rooms. And then as I started facing myself and the prospect of telling about myself, I'm like, oh my God, even these people would look down on me. <laughs> so, but that was a lie. That was a lie of the disease to keep me bound in my own stuff. And I'm glad that I had a lot of people around me in early recovery who put me on the right path. So back to this lady who I had hired um, as a sales consultant, um, she starts asking me these personal questions and I told her, well, everything is on me. I'm in charge of this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And then she starts asking me some personal questions and I'm like, you know, you're very expensive. I, I, I cannot afford to be telling you about my personal life when we have goals to meet. And um, so one day she shared with me one of her program tools in another fellowship. And I, I was actually sitting here at this desk and I started crying because I had never seen that level of people wanting to help each other for free. I'm like, what? You, you have people in recovery who help you like this and they do it for free? She's like, yeah. I'm like, so is that like a one-time thing? She says, no, every month. We get together, we do this every month. And we help each other. And, I, and that blew my mind. And I just started crying um, because everything felt like I had to figure out everything. And I did not. I did not. With my sex addiction, I thought, I, I thought it was a sales problem that I had. But I was running away all the time to act out or to otherwise disappear into my addiction. Um, and putting my business aside and putting my clients on hold and telling myself, well, you know, I can do this later. Um, I was putting relationships on hold. I, I was hiding my behavior by being super busy. And people would say, wait, I thought you were in this state. How come you're in New Jersey now? How come you're in wherever now? I'm like, oh yeah. It was. So the travel, the intense travel and, and the super busyness, even when I wasn't traveling was my, was the way I escaped into my addiction. So I didn't have any boundaries and I didn't have any accountability for my time. So that made me feel all the more entitled. And in recovery, what I've discovered is a tool to keep me honest on a day-to-day -day basis. So now part of my check-in with my recovery partners 
in SA or anywhere else is letting somebody know what I'm up to. Like every day, there's at least two people in my life who are in recovery who know what my schedule is. And 15 minutes to go. Thank you. What that enabled me to do is to be honest about my time, honest about who I was with and what I was doing. And there wasn't this like accidental slip and there was no, no acting out and then going back and telling somebody about it after the fact. So having that accountability upfront to tell somebody, this is what I'm going to do. And if I, I fall off of that, then how did that happen? So just a tool of communicating with people in program, whether it's through a 10 step call, whether through doing a DSR, attending a meeting, even if you don't have a, a person to call and you have a meeting, that is something which has been extremely useful in my recovery to keep me on the straight and narrow. As I said, I was very suicidal. I was afraid to tell anybody that I was um, in a meeting, in an in-person meeting. Um, my first year, there was somebody who was visiting our um, group and the person made a comment and they said, um, if I was God, I would not let me live. And that's the first time I heard somebody say what I was thinking. Because if I was God, I would not let myself live either. And um, and I had a lot of guilt from not having caught any diseases from the things that I did. So that made me feel unworthy of recovery. But um, being led to understand that God is willing to start with me at any point where I am right now. I don't need to compare myself to anybody else in the program. I don't need to compare my MOs to anyone else's MOs. We've all earned our seat one way or another. The degree of my illness doesn't have to be the same as someone else's. God expects, accepts me for who I am, how I am. And um, I, I took something from Bill's story in the big book about how he said, he talked about God as his newfound friend. And that helped me to start making peace with God. Because when, when I came to 12-step programs and people were saying it's a spiritual program, it's not a self-help program, I'm like, well, I'm disqualified from talking to God. Like, there are better people on this planet that God can talk to. Why would God talk to me? And, um, and they said, no, if you're willing to talk to God, God's willing to talk to you. And my first sponsor in this program had me do that as we were doing inventory. For every row on my inventory, she had me say prayer, like 60 seconds. We pray for 60 seconds and then um, forgot to tell me what he would have me be about that particular item on my inventory. And because of that, I started practicing talking to God. In thinking of God as my friend, like Bill did in the big book, what that enabled me to do was not avoid, because I, I always felt like not good enough to talk to God. Like I barely... I felt like lucky enough that any human being would take the time to talk to me. Knowing what she knew, what my sponsor knew about me at the time, like knowing that somebody even knows this and it was willing to talk to me, I thought that was such a huge deal. Um, talking to God about it was a whole other level that I did not expect. However, I kept practicing that. And by thinking of God as my friend, I started thinking about, well, what does a good friend do? A good friend communicates. But there's no requirement as far as when we communicate. If somebody's my best friend, there's no requirement that at five o'clock every morning or every afternoon, I have to talk to that person. Otherwise, I'm not a good friend. So I started thinking of God's qualities as a friend, that just because I don't do my prayer and meditation at the same time every single day doesn't mean that, I'm, that it's going to be one excuse that God's looking for to just completely get rid of me or make me pay for what I've done. Um, but willingness is the very thing. Sometimes people get intimidated by coming into recovery and being told you have to do 90, 90, you have to do all these things. And I try to remind people that's not what I ask me, what do you think program is? And they start giving you this long list of things. And it's like, that's not what program is. Those are things that we do and we can do any of these things as a way to get closer to our higher power. And as a result, higher power gives us sobriety as a result of our relationship with higher power.
So I try, even though I'm super excited about my recovery date and I have an app where I track all kinds of milestones in my recovery, but those are things that I do to encourage myself. And, but I'm, I'm not worshiping any of those things because at the end of the day, without my higher power, none of those things mean anything. I had a business before program, but what was I doing except destroying it? The only thing that kept my business alive at all is the fact that it made enough money so that in, in the times that I was not earning anything, that the money, that the business was making so much money that I could stay afloat. But had it not been for that, I would have no business to speak of. Um, 10 minutes to go, Rena. Thank you. Um, so I have got to thank for the fact that this month I celebrated my 22nd wedding anniversary, which is something I would have never expected. When I came into the program, I had no hope of saving my marriage because I had never been faithful to anyone. And I told my husband this before we got married. I said, listen, I've never been faithful to anyone. I don't know if I'm capable of it, but I just felt like after I crossed the line from virgin to non-virgin, I felt like, okay, now this is time to, to, this is my payoff time for being a good person and for accomplishing certain things. And therefore, this is what I want. And I would tell myself, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't do anything. Um, this is this is the one thing that I have for myself, and I felt so entitled to it. And um, I also had this thing that I expected a man to cheat on me, so why would I not do it first? Which was really bad. Um, and I was always living life in this protective mode that there's no way you're going to hurt me and things have to be my way or the highway. And I lived my life like that. I ran my business like that. Every part of my life, relationships, work, everything was pretty much on the basis of, are you doing what Rena wants or not? And if you're not, you're dead to me. And that's no way to have a relationship. I expected God to treat me like that because God had more power that I could ever dream of. And if I treated people like that, then why would God have any mercy on me and treat me any better. Glad to have found out that's not the case. Glad to have found out that as I got closer to God, I discovered things and I had to let go of a lot of the preconceptions that I had about God, preconceptions I had about other people and about myself. In step two, my sponsor had me make a list, which I've since expanded, and um, which was to make a list about my new conceptions of God. And that's what I held onto for dear life. After I made that list, I made another list about my new conceptions of myself, my new conceptions of marriage, my new conceptions of relationships in general, my new relationships about how to conduct myself in business. Um, and this is a design for living. So I try to absorb everything that I can from the recovery literature to apply it to my life and to keep me going. Um, I'm very much somebody that left to myself, my emotions are going to ruin my life. So what I do is I have these structures in place to carry me so that when I feel I'm not able to carry myself and I can't depend on my emotions to not fall apart, then I have these systems. And my systems are the people that I have in my life in recovery. I make appointments to talk to people in recovery. Since I do a lot of service, I always have a lot of people talking to me anyway, whether or not I make one outreach call, there's always somebody talking to me. However, I make it a point to make sure I have time on the calendar for recovery to talk to somebody every single day. What that means is I'm not waiting until something goes wrong to get help. I'm getting help now. I'm maintaining my spiritual fitness now. Sometimes it's hard for me when things change, when there's unexpected things happening during the day, and I get very anxious, and I feel like, oh my God, am I going to have a panic attack? Um, and that affects me like today, just to get current, something happened and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not ready for this. Excuse me. And I just thought I didn't have what it takes to face it. So instead of struggling, I did struggle. I, I'll, I'll admit this. I struggled with it a lot and I just wanted to make a lot of calls, but I decided to take the, my own advice, which I shared too. Which I share with my sponsees, which is um, value God's input before I value a human being's input. 
before I run to a meeting, before I call my sponsor, before I call a recovery partner, have I talked to God? Have I tried to get the answer? Because whatever anyone in the program tells me, whatever they tell me is supposed to point me to God. It's supposed to get me closer to God. They're not the solution. They're not going to come into my situation and save me and make my problems go away. They're there to simply encourage me and help me get closer to my higher power. Not five, five minutes, Rena. Thank you, five minutes. Thank you, Daniel. Um, these are supposed to. These are supposed to. These are tools and resources to help me develop my relationship with my higher power. So, I'm extremely grateful for my recovery. But I know that the the end all be all of my recovery is: Am I putting myself in a position to really be available to God? My prayers, a lot of times in recovery, even from time to time now, God, I'm in a tight spot. Can you help me? Like, is God going to come through for me this time? I'm tempted by a message somebody sent me, or I'm tempted by a particular person that I have to deal with, and there's no avoiding. You know, it's not. It's not. The kind of thing you can say, well, I have to go no contact. Well, that person is part of my world and I have to deal with it. So instead of asking and wondering, is God going to come through for me this time? I've started to reframe it and say, are you, am I available to do God's will? It's not, is God available? It's not about, is God available to help me to get me unstuck? Am I available? And do I have the humility to go do something that I'm scared to do? Do I have the humility to call somebody and say, I'm struggling? Um, there are people in this, on, in this meeting right now, and I love them because I can go and I can tell them the unvarnished truth of how I'm struggling, of what's going on with me. And I don't feel ashamed. I can, I can be transparent. I can be vulnerable. And I don't feel like somebody's going to hold it over my head um, and shame me with it later. And I say, well, you know, I, I've heard John speaker meetings before. You're struggling with this. Yes, of course I am. I'm human. And I've given myself permission to tell people the truth, to let them when I'm not doing when I'm not doing so hot, um, when I need support. And the one thing I'll say in closing is that I use these rooms to the maximum. I was so non-functional when I came into the rooms that it gave me the opportunity to really deep dive in recovery. My first, 800, my first 150 days in program, I spent more than 800 hours in my recovery. Literature, service, doing step work. I was doing four programs. I, I, got, I got my 60 days, so after I got my 60 days sobriety in, in this fellowship, I started <laughs> doing step work in uh, the other fellowships that I'm in because Everything was falling apart so fast. And, I'm, and they're like, well, do the one that's killing you first. I'm like, well, multiple things are killing me right now. <laughs> so taking advantage of the gift of desperation really helped me to get grounded. Service is indispensable in my recovery. I started doing service on August 10th. I got sober on August 20th. Many times I ended up on a meeting. It's not because I felt like coming to a meeting because I did not want to be one of these people having to come here all the time. I did not want to do that. However, because I had a recovery job, so to speak, and I had to show up or I had to find somebody to take my spot as greeter or take my spot as, as secretary or take my spot as timekeeper, that made me go to the meeting. And as a result of that, it kept me listening to the message of recovery. I heard how people were um, developing a relationship with their higher power. I heard even the bad things, like speaker meetings are reserved for people who have quote unquote made it so far and who are um, achieving something, so to speak, with their recovery. But I also learn a lot from people who are struggling in the rooms. Even though those people are not solution focused, I say to myself, hmm, how likely am I right now to be susceptible to thinking like that? And how likely am I to start making those rationalizations too and end up the same way? And I always ask myself, if I were to relapse today, what will I tell people tomorrow? caused it. So when I do that, it forces me to look squarely at myself and see what's going on with me. Very quickly, I'll, I'll share one thing. When I do my meditation, I have my big book, I have my recovery literature and you know my white book and whatnot. But I also have a couple things. I have a journal where I write and I say whatever's on my mind, good or bad. However, my journals tend to be a mixed bag of ugly crying and 
inspirational things. So I have this backup one, which is 100% positive. <laughs> and because of recovery, I'm able to do things like this. I'm able to have goals. You can't really see that well on the camera. I'm able to have goals in different parts of my life, including for my marriage. My top goal, cultivate my trust in God. And then what I do for that, which includes recovery. The other part, um, nurture my family and friends, meaning part of my recovery means having time on my calendar to reestablish relationships that I had thrown away, that I had completely destroyed, and I'm rebuilding those relationships. Those things are in my calendar as part of my commitment to recovery. Thank you so much for letting me share. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, sharing. I'm really encouraging, really helpful. Uh, one thing you said, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit more about, as you say, before I go to another person, uh, connect with God. Uh, I love that practice of asking God questions, listening, and kind of um, sensing whether through pictures or words or things like that, how he's speaking to me. But one thing I've found is when I'm triggered, it's really easy for my thoughts to go in circles and kind of spiral back to the trigger or the addiction. And uh, so I've, I've kind of adopted the practice of always getting it out by talking it through, but I really, I really like your point. So I'm just curious if you struggle with that and if you find a way around it. Thanks. Yes. And the big book says it's not going to come right away. It takes practice and that's okay. I don't have to figure it out on the first try. And if God doesn't give me an answer in the moment, that's okay too. I accept it. So that means I need to be still and I need to accept the situation for what it is. And now I just need to lean on God and wait out the thing that's agitating me in the moment. Um, that I can't be like a little baby all the time, right? In the beginning, um, I was calling people on my worst day in recovery. I, I reached out to 27 people before 9.30 in the morning. I was not well at all. That's what I needed that day. That's okay. That cannot be my, my life every day in recovery where every morning before 9.30 hits, I need so many people to support me, right? So as I get more practice in talking to God, then I'm less likely to grab on other people's time and make myself um, codependent. There's, there's a place to lean on the, on, on the, on, on the fellowship. And I do, I do that. And I absolutely did that because I was averaging six hours a day for four months, every freaking day. So there is, and I was, I was a basket case. So I needed all the help I can get. I went to all the meetings I could. When I went to an in-person meeting, I dialed into a meeting on my way to the meeting and I dialed on another meeting to another meeting on my way home. That's what I needed at the time. But then there came a point where I'm like, you know what? They said it's a spiritual program. So I need to start shifting my dependence upon the, the on, upon the spirit of the universe, as it says here in the in, in the book. We I have to depend more on God and rely less on me and rely less on human aid. Yes, I appreciate it. I use it. I leverage it. I have to have it for accountability, but I also practice being more um, uh, depending more on God and still checking with someone to say, hey, I prayed about it. And then they say, and that's what I do too with other people. When they call me for advice, I'm like, okay, did you pray about it? What does your higher power say about it? And say, oh, I didn't pray. I'm like, okay, that's okay. Let's pray right now. Let's take 60 seconds. Let's pray right now. And then tell me what you think your higher power is telling you. And then after that, um, if they want feedback, I offer it. <clears throat> that's what has helped, has helped me. Thank you. Thank you, Rena Daniel, for the question. Uh, next up, we have Natalie. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Rina, for your wonderful share. I, uh, I learned a lot from it. And I've got a, a question, I guess. Um, my question, I don't know if it's a real question. So I, I, uh, I am very codependent. In the past, I was really, really, really codependent with guys. Um, so when I came into recovery and I met God, I did not know my higher power before the program. I met him in the program. All I do now is spending time with God, like a lot, a lot, a lot in meditation and prayer, a lot. I do my daily meeting. I do a weekly face-to-face -face meeting and I schedule that. What I don't do is uh, reaching out to people, taking the phone. What I do sometimes is sending a voice note because I'm too scared to bother them, but I do not make phone calls. And like a week ago, I realized like, I've got to do this. And it's on my plan. I've got to make at least one call a day to a sister in the program 
but I am too scared. I just think like, no, nobody's waiting for me. And I know I'm... it's stupid. Thank you. I know it's stupid. It's all in my head because if people call me, I really appreciate it. But do you have something to share about that? It's all in my head. I know that. Yes. Thank you. The trick is I've used that and I've had my sponsors use it. Just go into a, go into a room, uh, whatever recovery room that you have access to, and send a message to the group and say, hey, I'm available. If somebody needs outreach calls, I'm available. So by putting yourself out there to be of service instead of saying, I'm falling apart. I need somebody to call me. Like, I don't want to be that person. Like, I'm begging for somebody to call me. So I'll say, hey, I'm available for outreach call, for an outreach okay. call. And people will say, oh, my God, are you available right now? And then you'll have so many people jump on that, that you'll feel better. But I would say, you don't. it doesn't have to be every day. Like, give yourself a chance to succeed by making one appointment with one person once a week. That's it. Okay. That's doable, right? Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Nathalie and Rena, for your response. Uh, we have a number of people in line, so if you have fewer than 30 days, go ahead and, and put your virtual hand up and we'll put you in the queue. Hans, you're up next. Thank you so much, Hans Alcoholic, or Sexaholic from uh, New Mexico. Rena, thank you for your, uh, your excellent share. Happy birthday to you. And I can tell why you've got three years. You're really into the program. and you know, by prioritizing it, I mean, my experience too has been that I, I've received much more than I ever imagined, not just in, you know, the program terms, but just in my life, you know, improving my conduct helped to uh, just to meet better people and just be in a better place in my day to day. Um, I guess my question is, I've had, I just had this conversation yesterday and a couple of days ago with the same guy, and he's just reluctant to prioritize the time to connect with God, to connect with program, to get more phone numbers. And it's heartbreaking. The guy's sober. I know he's sober. And I know he goes to meetings once in a while, but that's about all he's doing. Time. And anyway, I just wondered if you'd had that experience too. Thank Service. you. Service. Have him sign up for a recovery job. If we have lots of them at the noon phone meeting, we have 13 meetings a week. <laughs> so the noon meeting is a lot of help. We'll put them to work. <laughs> but if you, if you, that's what I did. Like I, I, I was telling um, some people in a meeting yesterday that, uh, no, which meeting was I saying this? Um, was it my Sunday meeting? I don't know. One of the meetings that I was in recently, I said, I did not have hope for even 30 days of sobriety. If I could make it a week, that would be great. I literally got it, started getting sobriety two to three minutes at a time because I was a timekeeper on meetings. Between the time the person started to talk and the time I gave them the one minute warning, I was already acting out. But <laughs> between that time and that last minute, I was able to stay sober because I, I was watching the countdown. So I literally was getting my sobriety two to three minutes at a time and then it grew longer and then it grew to 15 minutes. I'm like, oh, I went three minutes without acting out. Can I last 15 minutes? So having that recovery job and doing service really helped me and took my focus off of me and helped me to, to be there for other people. And, by, and, and also the huge benefit I got from service is that there's a lot of people who, are, who have really good recovery. They're not really out there, but they do a lot of service. And I was able to catch what they have because of the proximity to them from doing service, I pass. Thanks, Hans and Rena. And by the way, Rena, just to clarify, you're not limited to a minute on your response, just the folks asking the question. So you can go as long as you want, okay? Uh, next up is... Thank you. <laughs> okay, Ryan, you're up next. <laughs> hey, Rena, thank you for your share. Um, you know, I'm four months into recovery and I feel like some of those emotions that I've numbed are, are coming alive. And I just appreciated your vulnerability and, and letting us see your emotion, but also just about the panic and the, and the anxiety. What have you found to be most helpful in addressing those emotions when they come up and you know, what, where have you grown in, in your ability to, to deal with those? Yes. The 12 and 12 says that 
one of the biggest benefits of, or one of the biggest um, sources of emotional sobriety is meditation. But I don't do it for, for that purpose. But I find that by doing a 10th step, telling somebody what's going on with me, taking whatever action I'm, I'm not doing, um, things like that help me. So for example, I have, a, I, have I, I wrote a little um, form for myself, a, a recovery tool that I created early in my recovery to piece together a, four, a fourth step, a 10th step, and an 11th step all in one. And I only limit myself to doing that for 15 minutes because even now my capacity to get into self-pity is extreme. <laughs> so I told myself 15 minutes to get this done. So three resentments that I have right now, three fears that I have right now, because my fears are not disembodied. There's probably something, some loose end that I didn't tie up. There's probably something I'm avoiding to do um, or somebody that I'm avoiding. So by making that, that list of what I'm avoiding or what I'm tolerating, it helps me get a little bit honest with myself and then I can share that with somebody else. Uh, so three resentments I have right now, three fears I have right now, but I start with what three things am I grateful for? Because it kind of primes my head to be positive instead of my negative self. And by doing that, I can say, okay. And then I also write down, and then I do the two-way prayer, which is you know praying and listening to God. And you can tie in a three-way prayer by bringing another fellow into it. And I write down, okay, what I pray over it. And then I say, okay, what three steps maybe would my higher power want me to take? And then what are three potential outcomes that only God can take care of? Because there's no way I can control those outcomes because I, I just, I can't figure out my way to manipulate and force and make any of this happen. So it's really not up to me. And, um, and kind of admitting powerlessness over that and saying, okay, well, those are, those would be great outcomes, but only God's in charge of that. But what am I responsible for? And just focusing on doing those three things that I think up to three things that I can be responsible for sharing that with someone and making myself accountable and say it's completed. Now I like to be efficient. If someone's not available, I'm not going to let that stop me. I literally have a spreadsheet where I write down what am I, what do I need to confront that I'm not being honest with myself about or things I'm tolerating. The second thing is what loose ends do I have? like promises that I've made that I haven't come through on. And then the third column is the people side. Who am I avoiding? <laughs> what, what am I dodging that I'm like, oh, I know I need to have this conversation, but I'm not ready. I still put it on the list because I, I know I need to get around to it. And by putting it on paper, then all that, all that heavy feeling is a little bit relieved. And then I have a fourth uh, column on the spreadsheet which is the date that I resolved it, the date that I dealt with that situation. And by seeing the, the dates line up or, or pile up in terms of, I did take action. I was scared out of my mind, but I did it anyway. And here's the date and time I did it. It kind of, it kind of encourages me. I know it sounds corny and I hate admitting that I do that, but it's what I need. It gives me a little pat on the back. It makes me feel good that I did something about my situation instead of being in self-pity. Um, and I, I do that. And then I continue on with my day and I give myself a high five and I talk to somebody else in the program and do that as a high five also. Um, you know, if my emotions are going to be what they're going to be anyway, what not, why not try to make them positive? And why not be around other people in recovery who can give me a boost? So that's, that's how I deal with things. Super helpful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question, Ryan. And uh, we have five people in the queue, and um, I'm not sure we can get through all of them, but realize uh, we do have virtual coffee afterwards. Rena, I don't know if you're available to stay a few minutes after, if we didn't, don't get to all the questions or not. Yes, I can. Okay, great. And one other thing, someone in the chat, another woman has asked for your contact information. So maybe in the virtual coffee after the meeting, we can talk about whether you would like to do that and yeah, how I'll, might... send, I'll send it to her right now. Okay. You know who it is, who I'm referring to? Oh, Tamana. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I can only send it to Nat Natalie and Daniel. So 
Yeah, you can send it to me, Rina. I can forward it to Tamara. Yeah, right. there you go, you know. Natalie. Yeah. Okay, uh, Juan Carlos, you're next. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I'm very glad, uh, Rina, to be in this meeting, uh, listening to your lively share. Uh, I appreciate a lot. And also, uh, well, I believe with your share about, uh, well, having a calendar, uh, scheduling uh, staff for each day. Uh, well, now in recovery, I also have my plan for each day. I used to have also for acting out, and nowadays I have for calling, uh, meetings, or recovery action. So I appreciate a lot to listen to yours. And also, I wanted to ask you about your marriage. Uh, I know that uh, you have had uh, enhanced, uh, upgraded in your uh, marriage relationship with your husband. But I would like to know how has changed um, that relationship with your husband uh, since you started your sobriety. Thank you. Wow, that's a great question. I forgot to talk about that in the share. Um, so my marriage was already on the rocks before recovery. So I did not have, I was not one of those people who joined to save my marriage because I thought my marriage was already beyond saving. That was not a goal. That was not a hope of any sort. Um, so I was free to just focus on saving myself because I was far gone. And and when I told my, my husband that I was going to 12-step programs, and then there came a point where I was going to in-person meetings every day when there weren't um, meetings that I needed for this disease, I went to open AA meetings and I started going every day. And my husband was like, you're going to another meeting? I'm like, yes, I need a lot of help. <laughs> so um, over time, my husband started trusting me more when I would not be home. He used to send me this text messages. So where are you today? And there was a point where that question used to make me upset and made me feel like, oh, I need to have a story for when he says that. I don't have a story anymore. I can tell him exactly where I am. I can show him exactly where I am. Um, in terms of rebuilding a relationship, it's been slow. I felt like I was still trying to force things to happen. And one of the things I struggled with in withdrawal was um, once I got sober, I, I felt so entitled that I'm like, well, I'm not, I, I'm not objectifying those men anymore. I'm not with anybody else anymore. And therefore you owe me this. So I was basically trying to use my sexaholism on him and being demanding. Um, I felt like I was owed that because I'm not cheating anymore. Therefore I need to have this whatever I want, however I want, however often I want. And I had to give that up. <laughs> I had to come way down. I had to, um, I really had to wait it out. And he had to wait it out to see that I'm different. And I had to be convinced and he had to be convinced that I've changed. And now without me forcing and demanding things anymore, he's come around in ways that I would have never thought. I'm like, oh my God, I thought I always had to demand. And come to find out, I don't have to do that. And now he's like, I want to go on weekly dates. I was telling him a, a few weeks ago, hey, when can we talk about such and such? And he says, I want to have weekly dates. I'm like, oh, you want to go over this every week? He says, no, I want to have weekly dates. I'm like, oh, like dates, dates? <laughs> and, um, and we've been doing that ever since. But if somebody had told me, you're going to have to wait until you're almost three years sober for that to start popping up. I would have been discouraged, but I don't know. But I, um, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I knew that whether or not my husband left me, um, I may lose my marriage. I may lose my home. Um, I mean, when I say I destroyed my marriage and destroyed our, I destroyed my personal finances and our business finances, my business finances, I'm, I'm the owner. But um, I destroyed that to the point that we could have lost our home. The only reason why we didn't lose our home was because the debts compared to the assets were so massive that it wasn't worth the trustee's time to go after our home. And it's by the grace of God that we still have a roof over our head, that my business is alive once again, that I can show my face anywhere again because I was using time that I was supposed to be doing other things, other commitments to disappear. And I wasn't always um, 
discreet, let's say. And um, so for, for all that to go to, to change, he had therapy. My husband has some recovery in terms of uh, from Alateen and Al-Anon from when he was growing up because his dad was an alcoholic. And, um, but his dad died sober with several decades of sobriety, but he, he had had experience with 12 step through Al- Alatina Al-Anon. So by the time my crap <laughs> came out, it was like, he knew how to deal with me. Thank God. And I feel, um, glad to have a chance to be the wife that I think I should have been all these years. I've known him 27 and a half years. We've been married 22 years. And I feel like I have three years of sobriety to give him a gift. I can't pine over the past. And he told me this, like, I know you beat yourself up about the past, but the past is the past. Let's move on. And I'm so happy for, and, and grateful for that. So now I'm like, okay, I can't use my energy and time and emotions to cry over the past because that will be losing more time to the disease. The disease already stole enough time from me. I cannot allow it to lose, to, to steal more time from me now, more time from my marriage now, more time from my business, more time with spending time with my elderly parents and causes and, and places and people who are important to me. So pass. Thank you, Rena. And go that. Yeah, thanks, Rena. Lee, you're up next. I see he's trying to unmute. There you go. Hello, Lee. You had it there a second ago. Yeah, there I am. I'm not there. I just, so my name's Lee and I'm a real sexaholic. Thanks for sharing. I was right there with you through the whole thing. Uh, But uh, in 1985, I was working 14 hours a day. Uh, acting out about three or four times a day and using other substances and behaviors. And I was in a rush the whole time. Uh, I got sober uh, from all the substances and behaviors. But what left with me was uh, I still had the busyness. I was so busy. And by five years into recovery, I was going to 13 meetings a week, working 14 hours a day, had sponsees, had a sponsor, was the chairman of the intergroup, key person to two minutes. And my physician says, this is not happy, joyous, and free, uh, and had to interfere on me. So have you experienced any difficulties with that, and how have you handled it? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I, um, service was my escape from acting out. And at first I needed that. And I'm not ashamed of, of the fact that I needed service and other recovery commitments to keep me busy because otherwise I would have not been doing, I would have been doing something else. Um, however, as I grew in my recovery and that's what it says, larger spiritual fitness. I may get, you know, sobriety is not enough. I have breathing room now. I have the space, mental space available to be able to do something else with my time. So yes, what I've done is I I truly believe in um, service rotation. So whenever I do service, it is with the intent of taking the recovery job, doing my best with it, systemizing it, training other people to do it and turning it over and, and, and giving it to other people. So as the noon secretary, there's a lot of things initially that was my job, but I'm, but first of all, I said, no, I'm not, that's too much work. But, um, Rena Esther in Maryland said, well, if I, if I come on as their post-secretary, will you take it? I'm like, oh, okay. So because of that, she and I became the co-secretaries. She's doing the parts that she likes. I'm doing the parts that I like. But even that was still too much. So we trained people. It, it took some work to recruit people and train them. But we, find, we found people who were willing to be a servant. Hey, listen, you're going to be 100% in charge of this. Do you want to take it over? We'll be here to help you if you want help. But this is your thing to run and to you know, get any other people you need to help you do that service. Is that okay? So it took several iterations, but we did find people to, to take on some of these responsibilities. They're running it. and and then 
if they need to consult us or need our help, then we step in. Otherwise, we just stay in our lane. Um, and I try to not make suggestions unless somebody explicitly asks me. So if I notice that once I've delegated <laughs> the position and they start doing it and they're not doing it the way I did it, instead of saying, oh, I suggest blah, 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 which I caught myself doing, I backed off. I'm like, no, I'm not even going to look in the group chat to see what they're discussing. I'm just going to let them figure it out by themselves. They can do it however they want. And then if they, and randomly do they do that, they rarely come back to me and say, hey, Rena, what should we do? They figure it out, they do it the, the way they want. So then I says, okay, I can step back. I have recently over the course of many months, it's taking me a long time to unwind my responsibilities, but I've been, um, what's the word? I've been resigning from one service position after another so that I can have more time for my elderly parents, more time to go on dates with my husband and more time to just be like something doesn't have to be on my calendar for me to just say, no, I'm not available to do that service this month. You know, and sometimes it was like, oh, you're not on that committee anymore. You're not this anymore. Can can you come over here and help? I'm like, no, thank you but I can point you to other people who could be good at it and you can go to them and do it. So that's what I do. Um, I serve, but I like training other people to serve. When I sponsor someone, I let them know that my purpose is not simply to, you know, be a, a shoulder to cry on, but my hope is that you're going to become a sponsor too. So I sponsor my sponsees so that they have it in their mind that you're not going to be the one always asking for help, asking for help. You're going to, you need to see yourself as somebody that one day you're going to get this program. You're going to get the promises in your life. And now you're going to have to start giving it away to other people. Thank you. You're doing a lot better at three years than I was. I was still in prison. Thank you so much. <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.